following sermon was originally preached in 2019 in a series on Acts at Horizon Reformed Christian Fellowship. It's being re-released here to just further the conversations we're currently enjoying in our small groups at New City Presbyterian this term. Uh, Many thanks to Horizon for granting us permission to do that, and to God be the glory. Human history is broken. In a couple of ways, I mean it's broken in the sense that it's spiritually broken because us as humans are spiritually broken. We're sinful, uh, we're corrupt, we're self-obsessed. So of course our history is also broken in that sense of the word. Uh, But it's also broken in the sense that it's broken in two. There's a huge break in history uh, uh, and everything that's ever happened in human history falls into either one or the other of two distinct stages in history. First of all, uh, there's the period uh, leading up to Jesus' death. And it's an age of spiritual brokenness, yes, uh, but it's an age that's marked by a continuing promise by God, a promise that he would step in and deal with our sin. And it's really, it's because the human part of our history is so uh, fundamentally sinful Uh, down to every last person, that the need for God to step in and do something about our sin uh, is so painfully clear. That's the first stage of human history, uh, marked by universal sin, but a growing uh, promise and hope uh, in in God's promise that uh, he would step in and save us. And uh, the second stage of human history then begins uh, when God did step in and save us. Jesus was sent into the world Jesus was sent into the world to receive the punishment that our sin deserves. And we don't like hearing that sort of language. Uh, But in actual fact, it's not enough to say uh, that God would be well within his rights to punish our sin. That's not enough because it would actually be wrong if God didn't punish our sin. You see, God is not like us. God is just, and God must be perfectly just. But God loves us so much that to save us from that punishment, he redirected it all onto himself. That's what Jesus' death was all about on the cross. God taking our punishment for our sin and brokenness and corruption on himself. And so this second stage of human history began there, uh, and it's still marked by human sinfulness, uh, but it's now got uh, not the promise that God would step in and deal with our sin, but uh, the revelation that he has done that, the fulfillment of his promise. He has now dealt with our sin in Jesus Christ so that we can be set free from its penalty. And this event that we're looking at in Acts chapter 2 this morning marks that historic changeover in those two stages of history. The age of promise has has given way now to the age of fulfilment. God promised to save us from sin and now he has. And 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 like a like a balloon that's slowly filling with water, bigger and bigger, uh, throughout that whole first stage of history, the expectation and the anticipation and the longing for God to do this It just exploded. See, stage two didn't just kind of slowly uh, displace stage one. It burst out of Jesus' tomb on Easter Sunday. 
And here in Acts 2, as part of that changeover, the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, at the festival of harvest, at the festival that celebrates fulfillment. And the Holy Spirit is poured out here, not for the first time in human history, but in a profound and epic new way, a way that's going to bring people from all nations of the world into God's kingdom. So what we're looking at in Acts 2 this morning is absolutely monumental. It's absolutely unique. And it's happening at that very changeover between those two stages of human history. So if you only get one thing from today's sermon, this is it. This will do. That Acts 2 is unique and it marks such a significant thing, a significant and unique event. This passage is like the public launch, if you like, of that second stage of history. The turn of the ages. Jesus and the disciples, uh, uh, in his earthly ministry, they'd been proclaiming that the changeover is imminent, uh, and now they're going to proclaim that it has happened. Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, he's ascended, and he is seated at the right hand of God. He's done what he came to do. He has intervened in our broken storyline and dealt with our sin. So now, in, in this stage of history, uh, the difference is that we now know how God's going to fulfill that promise he made, how he did fulfill it. If only we will receive what Jesus has done, we will be forgiven and restored to God. This event here in Acts 2, uh, by the way, precedes uh, the written Gospels that we're so familiar with, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it, it precedes that. This is the first launch of this, the first a public presentation by the apostles of this epic news about this shift in the whole human storyline. And it might seem, yes, like this is quite a bit by our standards that we're trying to tackle this morning, doing the whole chapter in one go. Uh, but I, I really think we need to uh, take the whole thing together if we're going to appreciate the significance of this event. However, we can look at it in four sections, I think. Uh, the first being, in verses 1 through 12, this excitement uh, uh, that's taking place. Uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out with the sound of a rushing wind, uh, the appearance of tongues of fire, and the believers are enabled to speak in foreign languages to all the foreign people who are gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. God's promise, you see, wasn't just for Israel. And nor was it just for those uh, who might identify as Abraham's descendants. God's promise was always that he would work through Abraham, through this nation of Israel, to bring his blessings, his salvation, to people of all nations. And so this is what Jesus just commissioned these apostles with, if you remember how this whole book begins in chapter 1 and verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see here in this uh, excitement that breaks out in the first part of our passage, uh, the first sign of that mission. The Holy Spirit opens the mouths of these believers uh, to, to speak to, to Jews in Jerusalem but they're Jews who have different 
native languages. That is to say, uh, they're of Jewish descent or, or they have become Jewish during their life, but they were born in different countries and they're either are visiting Jerusalem for Pentecost or, or they're living there now. Verse 5, if I can read, says, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. These foreign Jews are a sign of what's to come in this narrative of Acts as the gospel goes out to people of all nations. But we begin in Jerusalem and with the Jews. And tongues here in verse 6 means languages. The modern church has varied uh, thoughts on, on tongues generally and it may seem confusing at times uh, so if there's only two things you get out of the sermon today, uh, then this might be the second. In Acts 2, tongues means languages, actual speech. Uh, so, so where our ESV translation says in verse 4, uh, uh, utterance, gee, we use that word every day these days, don't we? Thank you, ESV. When it says utterance, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It doesn't mean utterance as in they uttered a noise or a sound. It means utterance as in they uttered a decree. They made a statement. See, we don't use that word very often these days, do we? And if we do use that word, we've often got a different kind of nuance to it. Uh, but in this case, just think uh, a classical Greece think a public debate, think square, think uh, uh, Aristotle and so on and so on. It's to utter a decree. The NIV, some of you I know use, it captures the sense a bit clearer. Uh, but for my money, uh, this time the good, uh, the good old good news translation uh, hits the sweetest bullseye on this. It says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to talk in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. there's actually an even rarer word underneath utterance. If you thought we don't use that much, there's a rarer word underneath utterance in our ESV here. And I know some of you are far more proficient in the English language than I am. Uh, so you might actually be familiar with that older word behind the scenes there. Apathem. I kid you not, that is an actual English word. I've never heard of it. You might know it. I had to look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, and the Oxford Dictionary told me that an apothem is a concise saying or maxim, an aphorism. Thank you, Oxford Dictionary. Then I had to look up aphorism, and uh, just to be sure, uh, maxim. I checked that as well. Uh, and now the English language and literature buffs uh, sitting here with us uh, probably know these kind of words, but I can tell you they're beyond my working vocab range. Uh, I've never heard of apothems before, but yes, it is a word. And it's one of those words that's actually come across into the English language pretty much intact 
from its original Greek form. It's just spelt a bit easier, believe it or not, in English. Anyway, that's the word behind utterance in verse 4, just for your information. But actually, if I can stretch that just a little bit further, because today is all about languages. Uh, the, the word in our passage is actually in the verbal form. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them to apothemize. You've got to admit, it's starting to sound like a cool word. Um, it, it grows on you. Uh, I can't believe my English teacher never taught us this stuff. But uh, anyway, I know some of you lo- like to use the uh, Strong's Greek Concordance or whatever in your Bible apps or, or on, your, on your bookshelf at home. You can look it up there too. It's uh, Strong's uh, number G0669 if you'd like to look it up. And Strong's will tell you that it is to speak out, it is to speak forth, it is to pronounce, not a word of everyday speech, but one belonging to dignified and elevated discourse. But thankfully, we don't need old English words. We don't need the Oxford Dictionary. We don't need a Strong's Concordance. Luke tells us in the passage, if you look down at verse 11, uh, the people uh, speak uh, very clearly about what's going on and they say, we hear them. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. So when these believers are speaking in tongues, in Acts 2, as the Holy Spirit gives them utterance, they are proclaiming a message. It's not random, it's not garbled, it is purposeful speech. They're speaking languages, unlearned languages that they didn't know themselves. (laughs) Xenolalia is the modern technical term for this phenomenon today. If you're enjoying the language theme today, there's another word for you, xenolalia. Uh, uh, the believers were speaking languages that they had not learned to people who understood those languages and with a clear purpose to impact them as to the mighty works of God. The only real question is, what are those mighty works of God that these believers are declaring in unlearned languages to these foreign Jews? Well, whatever the message was, Verse 6 tells us that it gathered them. It gathered them and it bewildered them. Uh, Verse 7, it amazed and astonished them. And if you drop down to verse 12, uh, Luke tells us again, because he just can't tell us this enough, it seems, it amazed and perplexed them. Whatever they said by the Holy Spirit in those foreign languages made an impact but not on everyone. Some people presumably didn't speak those foreign languages and couldn't understand and didn't know what to make of this and some thought perhaps these believers were drunk. Verse 13, but others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, still speaking by the Holy Spirit, we would understand, Peter stood up to explain it to them. And when I say explain, I mean utter. Peter stands up and utters, you see. That's the same word there that was in verse 4. Peter stands up and gives them, in verse 14, an apothem. Peter, standing with the eleven, 
lifted up his voice and addressed them. He addressed them or apothemized them is the word. And like Strong's Concordance just told us, uh, Peter's apothem is important speech. It's not just yip-yap, it's not chit-chat, it's important speech. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, he says, and give ear to my words, he says. And then he goes on to explain to everyone, the amazed ones, the scoffing ones, uh, what they've all just witnessed. And his explanation is simple. Fulfillment is here. Fulfillment is here. Just as the prophet uh, Joel foretold by the Holy Spirit, the last days are now here. History has changed over. Jesus was crucified. The sky was turned to darkness. Uh, the earth cracked. The temple shook. Uh, uh, and the Holy Spirit has now been poured out on all believers. Even these Galileans who are speaking to you, verse 7, speaking in unlearned languages to you. Peter understands this prophecy from uh, the prophet Joel some 600 or so years before this event uh, as speaking uh, about this, this very moment. Fulfillment is here. The last days are upon us. Not my fulfilment, I think Peter would say. This event is not uh, to showcase the personal, spiritual fullness of these believers speaking unlearned languages. It's about the fulfilment of God's promise. The changeover of the ages is here. God has done what he promised. He, he, he has stepped in and dealt with our sin. And Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God as he pours out the Spirit in this new age that's upon us just as Joel prophesied. So this event marks a pivotal point in salvation history. Before you go searching for any other personal applications in Acts 2, pay attention to the fundamental changeover in human history that's taking place. Pay attention first and foremost to God's epic intervention in our storyline. And of course we know that that pivotal point in history is all about Jesus. It's not about the gift of speaking unlearned languages, by the way. I mean, Joel's prophecy there, if you'd like to look at it again, it doesn't even mention speaking in unlearned languages. It doesn't mention tongues. Rather, Peter understands the event that's happening now uh, is, is lined up with what generally Joel was warning about and telling about and declaring that the sign of the times is what's happening here. This sudden outburst of tongues is the sign of the changeover. The new stage of history is upon us. And in this, in this age, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers, not just the occasional prophet like Joel through stage one, on all believers. So if there's three things you can take home from this sermon, then... This can probably be the third. In this age, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers. There's so many alls and everyones in this chapter if you read it again later. But the word these Jews need to give their ear to in verse 14 is not that these believers are sober, verse 15, and nor in the end is it that explanation that Peter just gave them that uh, that, that Joel's uh, prophecy uh, warns of this and tells of this. What they need to give ear to is the actual message itself, the exposition that Peter then flows on to uh, straight out of this. 
verses 22 onwards. As if the fulfillment of Joel tells us that the last days are here, then the message in this exposition is the thrust of this whole event. It's, the, it's what's underneath everything that we need to pay attention to. After all, signs like this are only useful for, for pointing something out to us. And so Peter goes straight in to the message. God has intervened to restore a broken world full of broken people. That is the gospel that these men of Israel need to hear. That is the gospel. That is the, the message, the news, the announcement, the proclamation, the exposition, the sermon, the apothem, if you want to use rare words, that everyone in the world needs to hear. God has stepped in. His promised salvation has been revealed. So if there's four things that you can manage from this sermon today, or if you've only got room for one thing, then ditch the other three, because this is the focus of the chapter. This is what you need to know. Jesus was sent into the world, Peter declares in verse 22. Jesus was sent into the world. He was attested to you by God through his many works and signs and wonders. And then, in line with God's perfect promise, Jesus laid down his life on the cross, verse 23. But God raised him again, verse 24. Just as, just as David prophesied in the next scripture that Peter picks up here in his sermon, the Holy One of God couldn't see corruption, and so death could not hold him. David wasn't talking about himself in that scripture, Peter explains, because, well, uh, David is dead. David died and was buried, and you can go and visit his tomb, if you like, says Peter. David was talking about the Messiah, the Christ, and it is Jesus. Because Jesus was crucified, you men of Israel know that. Jesus of, is risen, of this we are witnesses, he says in verse 32. He is the one who David was speaking about. And oh, by the way, one other not insignificant detail in all of this that the other scripture Peter picks up also foretold was that the Messiah would not just be raised, not just ascended, but he is seated at the right hand of God. He has been exalted to the throne of God, verse 33. Jesus is crucified, resurrected, ascended, and seated at the right hand of God, and all authority, all power, all dominion has been given to him. So make sure of this, Peter tells them in verse 36, that God has made him both Lord and King, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is your King. The Lord did not say in David's prophecy, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet but until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is the king. Everyone will be put in submission to him. That is the message here. And just so you know what's going on here at the sign of the times changing over, it is Jesus, verse 33, Peter says, who has poured out the Holy Spirit of God on all these believers in an epic event to point you to the truth that Jesus is the King. And the whole point of this first sermon by Peter 
is precisely this. When, when the prophets of Scripture uh, prophesied the Holy One, the one who had come to save the world, they were prophesying about Jesus. The Jesus who these men of Israel had just had killed. This first ever uh, Christian sermon is not about the Holy Spirit, as we might expect. It's not about gifts. It's not about unlearned languages. It's about Jesus Christ. And as it hits that climax, they were cut to the heart, says verse 37. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, into the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Not the gift of tongues, we might notice. The gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter promises. The point of this event is not to, to open up and signal a new age of xenolalia. It's to open up a new age of the gospel of Jesus Christ who was crucified for our sin, who was raised in victory, who is ascended and exalted and is seated at the right hand of God. He is our king. It's to mark an age uh, that's, that's uh, telling all about Jesus. And the age is characterized by, and it's under the power of the Holy Spirit as this gospel goes forth. But it all points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been sent by Jesus to convict the world of his kingship and bring us into his kingdom. Some people might be empowered at particular times for xenolalia. Some people might be empowered for all kinds of things. Uh, but all of them are only empowered so as to glorify Jesus, whom God has made both Lord and King. So we might also notice that the Holy Spirit is actually at work all through this chapter we've just read this morning. And we might notice that he works in all kinds of different ways in this chapter that we've just read this morning. Uh, uh, Xenolalia to the believers in the first uh, incident. And then we might say that the Holy Spirit enables interpretation as Peter uh, unpacks the scriptures. Particularly the other, the other scripture from Joel, which itself was a work of the Holy Spirit and spoke of other works of the Holy Spirit, dreams and prophecies and visions. And then the Holy Spirit works through Peter in his clear exposition of God's word until at last people are convicted of this truth and they are saved. Again, works of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in many ways over the course of Acts 2, but all of them seem to be to one end. All of his work points us to Jesus. So the work of the Holy Spirit has been described as a floodlight ministry. Just like a floodlight uh, doesn't serve the purpose of lighting itself up, and nor does the floodlight uh, serve the purpose of lighting us up, but instead it lights the path in front of us so we can see, so too the Holy Spirit puts all of our focus not on himself or on us, but on Jesus. That is what the Holy Spirit does. And that rings very true throughout this whole chapter, if you'd like to read it again later. Those with uh, Xenolalia speak the mighty works of God, 
verse 11 said. And if we have eyes to see it, I suspect that the mighty deeds of God are, are, are contained in what Peter then unpacks and preaches. Jesus Christ attested to you by many works and signs and wonders. And so too the result of all the visions and the dreams and the prophesying foretold by Joel, if you want to look at verse 21, the purpose of all that was so that people would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And it shall come to pass that everyone who does call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Which is indeed what happens here at the end of the passage, at the end of Acts 2. And for mine, the most exciting work of the Holy Spirit is here. It's not at the front end of the passage where we so easily get distracted. It's at the back end of the passage. There's an absolute explosion of this promised blessing as people believe, as broken people, sinners, put their trust in Jesus Christ and are saved into eternal life. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in every single one of those 3,000 people. And his work doesn't stop there, by the way, if you keep reading, because look at their new lives in verse 38 and on. They suddenly devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles, that is, the teachings of Jesus that he's entrusted the apostles with. They devote themselves to the teachings of the apostles. They devote themselves to prayer. They devote themselves to breaking bread and fellowship in the new Christian community. So the Holy Spirit now begins reshaping these people to be more like Jesus. This is what he does. The Holy Spirit, like that floodlight, you see, he's always, whatever he's doing, his works always point us to Jesus. Sometimes as Christians today, we might wonder, we might ask, and especially if we haven't been given a dose of xenolalia at any particular point, we might ask and wonder, how do we know if we've been saved? How do we know if we've been forgiven how do we know if we've been given this gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, don't ask me. Ask an apostle. Peter, for one, has just said it. He's just promised it. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive it will be so. Everyone who called on the name of the Lord, said Joel. Paul, for another example, tells us in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1, if I can read, in Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it to the praise of his glory. When you heard this word and believed in Jesus, you were sealed. You were marked as one of God's people. You're a sinner, saved. In this new stage of history that all began with Jesus' death, was announced at Pentecost in such dramatic fashion, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers. 
not just the occasional prophet or judge like in the first age. And so if you have heard the word, Paul says, if you have believed in Jesus, Paul says, then you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And where the different gatherings of God's people like to, to express their faith in careful study or quiet reflection or singing and dancing or playing out hollering, their focus will always be on Jesus because that is the work of the Spirit. There's nothing else to base a church on but Jesus. Or to put it another way, a church based on anything other than Jesus is not a church. This is Jesus' church, and we are Jesus' people. And he is the one who's poured out this gift on everyone who believes. He's the one to whom the Holy Spirit directs us. He's the one uh, to whom the Holy Spirit transforms us to be more and more like. It's in the name of Jesus that we're saved. It's in the name of Jesus that we build each other up. It's in the name of Jesus that we reach out to others about the mighty deeds of God. So the work of the Spirit in any person or in any church is simple. To focus hearts and minds on Jesus. Looking forward from here, the future is also broken into two stages. In our immediate future, we wait for our king's return. We're saved here and now. We're forgiven here and now. We're sealed here and now with, with, with the Holy Spirit. And yet we still live in a broken world. We still wage war with our broken selves. But if you have repented and been immersed in the name of Jesus Christ, then know for sure that as you endure this world, as you endure yourself, uh, that, that you are forgiven. You're saved and you're sealed. The fruit of that, in the meantime, will look like a growing conviction about Jesus Christ. It'll look like a growing proclamation of Jesus Christ. It'll look like a continuing transformation to be more and more and more like Jesus to be more and more in the submission to our King, to open up more and more of our lives and put it into submission under our King and to realise more and more that we are absolutely covered by his love for us. So trust that Jesus has the power and authority to save you, because he does. Trust that by the Holy Spirit he will finish his work in you, because he will. Because when that second stage of the future sweeps in, Jesus will bring to completion everything he has begun to do. Sin and death will be no more. Everyone who has trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins will be kept in this fellowship he's brought us into. Be kept in this fellowship to enjoy him forever. And all of the brokenness will be swept away.